Okay, all right, Bokertov. So today's doc is Lamed Aleph, 31. <coughs> and we will today um, continue for a little bit the discussion of uh, stolen uh, objects for mitzvahs and then we'll move back to the issue about uh, the aesthetic qualities of the Lulav and the Esro. So the Gemara picks up two lines on the top on Lamed Aleph, Tanu Rabbanan. And we had just discussed yesterday the issue of a stolen Lulav which could be a problem of a issue of mitzvah v'aviavera, mitzvah that comes through the agency of sin. Um, and it also could just be a problem of ownership, that there's a need of lecha, um, in the same way you can't use a borrowed one. And if that were the issue, it would only be the problem on the first day. And that led us to an interesting discussion about buying um, uh, hadassim uh, that was growing on stolen land, and at what stage um, does it... Uh, are, are you considered, number one, the owner, and it, it removes problems of ownership? And number two, if there is a mitzvah, Babi Aver problem, wh- what stage does that become past history or not? Um, and when you encounter it, it's, uh, it's already considered to be acceptable. Okay, so that's what we did yesterday. We now move, continuing to focus on the issue of stolen, but move from lulav to sukkah. So let's take a look. Tanu Rabbanan, a rabbi's taught. Sukkah gzula, stolen sukkah. Well, you just decided to camp out in Rosh Hashanah and to put, it's a funny word, Mesachech, because it means you build a sukkah, not just you put schach in Rosh Hashanah. So either you uh, kicked somebody off of his land, or you are essentially, essentially stealing land by uh, making your sukkah on public space. So you're stealing land of the public. Rabbi Eliezer Posel, Rabbi Eliezer invalidates the Chachamim Machshirim and the Chachamim say that it's kosher, that actually you're Yotzeh. I mean, it's not acceptable what you did, but you're Yotzeh the mitzvah of sukkah. Amar Rav Nachman. Now we're going to unpack this. Says Rav Nachman. The scenario, the debate is in the case where you grabbed your friend and you ejected him from his sukkah and you seized his sukkah. Um, so, which means that what you stole was, you didn't actually pick up a sukkah and put it in your pocket and steal it. What you did was you seized the land. And this gets to the issue about to what degree land can actually be considered to be stolen because you actually have not taken the land anywhere. You've just kicked the guy off it. So, and this is a very nice, lovely tie-in to the last, end of the last parish. Rabbi Eliezer, you'll remember, says, you can only fulfill you the mitzvah sukkah with your own sukkah. You can't go from one sukkah to another. Even if a person allows you to sit in their sukkah or to borrow their sukkah, you don't fulfill the obligation. So, how does, therefore, why will that, therefore, explain why you don't fulfill your obligation in this case? Very easily. It's not your sukkah. Ikarkanik zealous. Now, maybe there's, this is an issue, like we've been saying yesterday, that if, even if you seize land, obviously you've transgressed the prohibition of stealing, but the land itself does not get change its status or identity as stolen because, again, nothing happened to the land itself. So that's the statement of Karka in an Ixelis. That's the general principle. But there is actually a position in, a, in the Gemara, in Babakama, in elsewhere, that Karka is an Ixelis, that you actually can change the status of land and it is considered stolen. Actually, interestingly, that's Rabbi Eliezer's position. So we're not going to, but we're, for the sake of argument, we're going to even sort of bracket that question of whether it can or can't be stolen. We're going to say that according to Rabbi Eliezer, either way, you wouldn't fulfill your obligation. Why? 
if the land is considered stolen and once it's considered stolen as we saw yesterday it's possible it would get to a state where actually it would be considered yours and belong to the Gosselin but you know I, I mean or I, I, I went too far you know or, but, but anyway or it's more under your the Gosselin's control if that's true then took Exulahi then you're still not Yotze because fine then it's a stolen sukkah and you're not Yotze with a stolen sukkah the Enarmi Karka ain't an exalus and if you say the most general assumption that Karka does not change its identity and it's not considered stolen you stole but the Karka isn't stolen then Sukkah Shulahi it's a borrowed sukkah which basically means look according to Rabbi Eliezer in order to fulfill the mitzvah of sukkah you've got to own it so either way you don't own this Either because either the land is considered stolen and you're considered stealing the sukkah, or the land is considered not stolen but you're still borrowing it. I mean, again, not really borrowing, but you're you're either way, it's not yours, stolen or borrowed, whatever the exact status is of the land. You, it, it's not you haven't taken possession of it, and therefore for Rebbe Eliezer, it's no good because Rebbe Eliezer says you have to own the sukkah. So that's why he says you're not Yotze. Okay, but as Rabbanon the rabbis go according to their reasoning. You fulfill your obligation with your friend Sukkah. The Karka ain't an exalus. And the Karka isn't stolen. Because if you would say the Karka is labeled as stolen, then that's going to be a unique problem of stolen land. Okay? But if, if the Karka isn't labeled as stolen, the land doesn't get the identity as stolen land, then the only question is, but it's not yours. Well, okay. So then that's not a problem. The Sukkah Shaulahi is a borrowed Sukkah. So this is a very nice sort of, in a way, summary of the two problems we've identified with the stolen lulav are now the two problems, as it were, with the stolen sukkah. One is, I don't care whether you call it stolen, whether you call it borrowed, the only question is, do you own it or not? And that's like the first day of of, of sukkahs for your lulav, right? Even if it's borrowed, if you don't own it, you're not yotze. So it's a simple question of ownership. The other point is, even when you don't need ownership, if something is labeled as stolen, it's a problem. Maybe mitzvah babi avera, some other problem, but it can't be labeled as stolen. That is itself a problem. So the Gemara is saying for Rabbi Eliezer, you got both problems. Either it'll be labeled as stolen, that's one of the problems, or you don't own it. And according to him, you got to own it. But according to the rabbis, for them, they don't need you to own the sukkah. So since they don't need you to own the sukkah, the only issue is escaping the label of being stolen. And since they say karka never gets the label of being stolen, you're in the clear. Okay? It will never get the label. How about the issue of ownership? For them, that's not a concern by sukkah. It's a concern by lulav on the first day, but it's not a concern by sukkah. And then this is the distinction. Possession and ownership are two completely different. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Aval, so that's when it's karka then you have the ability maybe to be Yotze for the reason we said you might not you, if you don't need ownership and it doesn't get a label of stolen you're good if you actually stole the wood the schach and you use that for the schach now you would have thought it would have said everybody says you're not Yotze because then the wood has a little, the label of gzula and you're not Yotze but now what we're doing and that really should be the halacha but what we're now doing is introducing a new concept of you can actually transform it from stolen to being owned. How do you transform it? Because what happens when you put the schach up on your sukkah? You, you're making maybe a shinoi. Maybe you're changing its identity. Maybe you're not, you know, knocking it in with, uh, with, with nails. Maybe you're shinoi Hashem. Before it was called wood. Now it's called schach. 
And, and here's going to become the key issue that we're going to see in a minute in the Gemara, there's something called Takanas Mewish, where there actually is a discussion in Baba Kama where the rabbis say that if you steal wood, and forget Sukkot, you stole wood and you built it into your house. You stole bricks and you built a house out of it. Um, now, even if we don't call it a Shinoi, because for some reason maybe it's easy to undo, we're not going to call it a Shinoi, maybe the bricks isn't a good, good example, but, um, what, but um, nevertheless, the rabbi said that you don't have to uh, take the beams off of your house and give it back. All you have to do is pay back. Why? So the reason is to kanas hashavim. A takana to make it easier to do kshufa. This is quite interesting, but if you think about it, we have these things nowadays. We have like, you know, we have like uh, um, amnesty days, right? For like tax, back taxes, or, uh, ha- you know, handing in guns, you know, and no questions asked. Uh, we have, uh, I think even libraries sometimes do like yeah. am- amnesty days for getting back your library books. So we just want, you know, we want you to, so here it's less about getting back the beam. We're, you're going to have to pay the guy for what? For, for, for you stole, you'll have to pay it, but we're not going to demand so much that you actually undo what you've done, even if it could be undone, because we want you to do tshuva, both for your own personal religious, you know, uh, um, status, and also because we want you to re- recompensate, and that'll actually achieve the more, you know, the, 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 the social goals we're looking for without making those at the same degree of demand. So that's an issue that even if it's not considered enough of a change to be a Shinui, yes, you could undo your roof. It hasn't really physically changed in a permanent way. We're not going to demand it. And that's what we say when you build it into your house. And here we're going to say in a minute, obviously it's a leap because the sukkah is much more temporary. It's only for seven days and all of that. But we're going to say the same thing applies to your sukkah. So if you steal schach and put it on your sukkah, Yes, you did the Yisra of Gzela. Nobody saying what you did is okay, but now you own the Schach. And therefore, you could be Yotze. If now that it's owned, it's no longer labeled as Gzula, and you're safe. So again, what's interesting to note here is not just the idea that they made this special Takana and now you own it, and that ties into ideas before that once things change enough, now you own it, but also that, it, that even though it was labeled as Gzula when you took it, and now you've done something to it and now you own it, it's escaped that label and it, you're, you're, you're totally okay to use it for the mitzvah. I mean, not only do you own it, but it no longer has that label. It's no longer a problem of mitzvah habab or whatever other problems we might have identified. Okay? And that ties in to the earlier sukkah. Is there a that goes into the No. You pay, you just... Yeah, just... Exactly. Look, anyway, that's a pro- question. According to the Torah, you, if, if you steal... There's no prison time. There's no punishment. The right. only thing is pay it back. Right. Like one really wonders in the Torah, what's the disincentive of stealing since the biggest consequence is just give it back. Right. You know? So, okay, that's a good question. But that's, we'll talk about that when we do Baba Kama. Right. All right. So, so the Mara says like this, Nimai. Now, where do you get this idea that they're only arguing about the case of Karka and they're not arguing about the case of wood? Because it talks about stealing to a, a sukkah and it's co- comparable to the case of making a sukkah in the middle of the Rishos HaRabim. Rishos HaRabim who the same way in Rishos HaRabim, the problem is not the wood, the problem is you're on land that you don't own. Sukkanami Karkalabdidehu. So the sukkah also, the problem is it's land you don't own. So that's the debate. That's where Rabbi Eliezer, Rechamim could say, the karka doesn't get the label, and it's not, and we don't need you to own it, you're okay. And Rabbi Eliezer says, look, A, it gets the label, and B, I need you to own it. Um, so that was why we could have that debate. But if you actually stole the schach itself, there, biblically, everybody should say it's no good. There, the schach does get the label, number one. But rabbinically, because we make you own the schach, 
everybody actually winds up saying that it is good and it escapes the label and it gets out of the ownership problem because now you really do own it. Two points to make first, which is number one is, notice how it emphasizes the schach. Let's say you stole the walls, right? Sounds like that maybe wouldn't be an issue. Um, that gets again to the centrality of the schach, number one. Number two, right, what, where do we know that a stolen sukkah is no good? So this is based on an earlier Gemara that says, you, meaning it has to be yours, not that you have to own it, but it can't be stolen. So that's where we learn that from. So Rashi says, well, once we made this rule that if you steal schach and you put on your sukkah, you own it, and it's not labeled as gzula, and if you kick a guy out of his land, it's not labeled as gzula, when are you going to have or have a scenario of a sukkah gzula if we know that the pasuk sort of says it's invalid? So Tosa says... I don't understand your problem. Biblically, you have that scenario when you steal the schach. It's just the rabbis made it a moot point. But anyway, Rashi Fils wants to figure out even after the rabbis made you own the schach that you stole, where would you have the scenario of a stolen sukkah? So you know what Rashi says? He says, if you built a sukkah on a wagon and then you actually picked up the wagon and you rolled the wagon away. So in that case, right, it's not an issue of land because it's actually movable. You actually did take the sukkah and you don't have this rabbinic idea that now you can own the schach because you built it into your roof because you didn't build anything into your roof. You just took the whole sukkah away. So for Rashi, or, you know, we could take a scenario that you walked into a guy's backyard and you lifted up his canvas sukkah and you marched away and then you put it down in your yard. So that would be a case where everybody would agree it would be invalid. It does get the label of gzula. And again, interesting that in, when in, by lula, we're just, we discuss the idea of mitzvah babiavera. By sukkah, we agree that gzula is a problem, but the concept of mitzvah babiavera never comes up. And that gets back to issues we discussed yesterday about what is the scope of Mitzvah Babi Avera. Here we're acknowledging a problem of Gzula, but we're not finding any need to put it in some Mitzvah Babi Avera context. Okay, Charlie, you had a question. Yeah, so the, the Rishu Harabing here is the ownership rather than the Shabbat. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but, so Rabbi Eliezer would have a problem with these restaurants that have a sukkah on the sidewalk. Exactly, but that gets back to yes. Rabbi Eliezer would have a big problem about you ever leaving, you know, going out of your backyard. Or not put a sukkah in the back of a truck and drive it around. Why not? They own the truck. They own the truck. What do you mean? We're talking about a gazilla problem. I understand. The guy owns the the guy didn't own the wagon that you described. In your case, put on the back of a wagon. The problem was you stole the wagon, not Ah, the the wagon. (laughs) Okay, so it goes like this. Um, so there was this uh, elderly woman that came in front of Rav Nachman now Rav Nachman was a relative of the Reish Galusa and he was like the sort of like you know the uh, what's it called the in-house council he was the in-house rabbi of the Reish Galusa so he was there with and the Reish Galusa you know was the political head of the Jews um, in Basel and often um, he or his uh, minions um, got involved his servants got involved in the you know and always sometimes not so uh, upright behavior behavior. Um, so let's take a look what happened. So Amrle Reish Galusa, so Amrle, so she said to Rav Nachman, so she, was, she had a complaint. So she wasn't going to complain to the Reish Galusa, you knew that he wasn't going to care, but she figured that the rabbi would care. So she went to Rav Nachman and she said to him, 
Reish Galusa Vakula Rabbanan, the Reish Galusa and all of the rabbis, the Bay Reish Galusa, that are in the house of the Reish Galusa, because maybe it's Sukkot, you know, and he's having a nice Simchas whatever he's doing, and he's hosting all, a lot of the rabbis in his house. So you, all of you guys, you're sitting in a stolen Sukkah, because basically what happened, the Reish Galusa said to his servants, hey guys, it's coming Sukkot, go build me a Sukkah. So the servants went out, and you know, they had the uh, backing of the Reish Galusa behind them, so they walked into people's uh, you know, yards and cut down uh, trees and, you, you know, it's for schach, for the Reish Galusa Sukkah. So you guys stole, stole my, uh, you know, you cut down my trees, stole all the wood, it's from my tree, it's a stolen Sukkah. All right. She was, she was crying out, she was yelling, and nobody was paying attention to her. And he, but most interestingly, Rav Nachman, who should have been there to defend, you know, what, what's right, he, even he wasn't paying attention to her. No, he, oh, so, um, so, Lo Ashkach Rav Nachman. So, and Rav Nachman didn't pay any attention to her. Uh, so, Amrleh, so she said to Rav Nachman, Itata, a woman, the Havileh Abua, her father had, Tlas Mev Tamni Sre Avde, 318 servants. Is yelling in front of you and you're not paying any attention to her? Now, what does he mean her father had 318 servants? Anybody, does that number 318 resonate with anyone? No, 300, what? Excellent. So Avram had Shmonatar Shloshmeot. He had 318 servants when he, it says when he was running after to, uh, to uh, save Lot. So she basically is saying, look, you know, what do you think? You're so high and mighty that you don't have to answer to, like, you know, a commoner? We're all descendants from Abu Yitzhak Yaakov. I also come from a very chashub of heritage. How can you be ignoring me? I mean, you know, I'm a person, I'm a Jew. How could you be ignoring me? And you stole my schach. All right, so good for her. So what did they say back? So, Amr Lehu, Rav Nachman, so Rav Nachman said to them, because apparently she was yelling and all the rabbis were overhearing this, that were in the sukkah. So Rav Nachman said to them, so, Pi'isihidah, this woman is like a blabbermouth, or like a, what's another word? Not blabbermouth, it's a, like a uh, chatterbox or something. You know, she's a complainer. So, yes, maybe the servants did steal the schach, but we're still Yotze, because they stole the schach, they built it, they stole the wood, they built it into the schach. So what did we just say? If you steal schach, wood, and build it into the schach, you have to pay back the person, but... You now own the wood, and where you'd say the mitzvah sukkah. So it's quite funny because I don't think the woman actually cared whether they were being Yotze the mitzvah sukkah or not. <laughs> I think he was actually making the complaint about, like, it's sort of like the mitzvah about the Avera complaint. How is it that all you rabbis are there, you're implicitly condoning these actions, right? So the fact that, well, Technically, we're still Yotze the Mitzvah. You know, at least what he could have said was, you're right, it was wrong, they shouldn't have done it, you're going to be compensated. You know, that probably would have made her feel a lot happier. Her concern wasn't whether they were Yotze the Mitzvah or not. So it's actually, you know, I think it's like a disturbing story because it's almost like, it, the Gemara doesn't, you know, seems to be, it's not clear, but seems to be, uh, it's not clear, is it siding with Rav Nachman? Is it also siding with her? But to be so, it, 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 it's funny the idea of being so dismissive. But in terms of the mitzvah, that there's no problem. Of course, we're yotze because yes, they stole the schach. But in the end, all you you know, it's no longer gzula. We own it, and you just have to be, and you can just get back your money. Okay, like this particular one. Yeah, uh, sitting in the sukkah. I'm trying to remember. We definitely have cases like yeah. that, you know, about uh, the dynamic of people complaining, to, and particularly sometimes Dafka women, you know, with the rabbis. So, 
Yeah, okay, so the matter sounds like this. I'm Ravina, so it says Ravina. Haikashur de Metalulasa de Gzula. Now we're going to sort of restate state the underlying principle of what we said before. A beam of a sukkah that is stolen. The rabbis made a takana, mishum takanas meirish, because of the takana of the beam, like I talked to you before. That's a concept, takanas meirish from Babakama. That if you steal a beam and build it into your house, you only pay the money. So basically he's saying, yeah, that's what we do here by the sukkah as well. So the Marsh says, Pshita, obviously. And we just got through saying that when you steal wood to make schach, like, you know, branches, why would I think a beam is any different than branches? You're basically saying we made this takana by a sukkah. Well, we've already been saying that. So the Gemara says, no. I might have thought, Eitzim shchichi. Eitzim are common. Avohai, but a beam, lo shchicha, is not common. Aim low. And therefore, maybe we wouldn't make the takana. Kamash we do. Now, who cares? common or not common why should that affect whether you're going to make the takana so Rashi says because it's all very nice to try to get the other person to pay up and to make it easier for the person to do tshuva and the person to pay up but what about the poor guy who wants to get his thing back and all you're giving him is money so if what he lost was something that's easily you know purchasable easily attainable sticks so fine, so instead of giving me my sticks, you give me $100, I'll go to the Home Depot, I'll buy the $100 worth of sticks, big deal, it's one little lousy trip. So for that, we'll make a takana. But if what you stole was something that's not so easy to find, a custom-built beam, I'm going to have to go to North Carolina in order to go ahead and get this, the money is not an easy substitute for me. So maybe that we would not make the takana, maybe that we would demand you have to give back the beam. Kamash Milan, that even though it's not so easy to go ahead and to find this and to replace it, we still are going to say, just give the money. Yes, there is going to be a little bit of unfairness to the guy who lost out, but ultimately this is going to be better for everyone if we just demand that you give back the money. Okay. Again, what is surprising is that we say this even by a sukkah where it's very temporary. Okay. And that's the Gemara is going to point out right now. So the Gemara says like this. Um... Hani mili bego shiva. Now that idea that you only owe the money and you don't have to give back the wood or the beam is only during Sukkot. So if you do your tshuva during Sukkot, then you give back the money. Aval, uh, where am I? Aval shiva, after the seven days of Sukkot, hader and then you decide to do tshuva, then you got to give back the beam itself. Okay? Why? Because then it's like, you know, the sukkah, it's like it's no longer considered like you're going to be keeping the sukkah. Right? The sukkah was only meant for the week, and therefore it's not like it's any more part of any enduring roof. Okay, but if in a physical way you have made it more permanent, like you like you secured it with plaster, then shivanami, then even after Sukkot you would have to give it back. Okay? Because then uh, you would not have to give it back, you would own it. Now again, what's fascinating is that we still needed the rabbinic takana. Why don't we say these things just make it yours because it's a shinoi? So again, with all of these, the point is it's a non permanent shinoi. It's what the Gemara said before, Shinoi Hachoser Libriato. Since it would be easy to take it down and remove it from the schach, or relatively easy, and you could restore it, then from the normal principles, you're not kona. The only reason you would be kona would be because of the special takana. And therefore, we're saying by a sukkah, the takana is enforced for the week, but not after the week, unless you actually have built it in in a more permanent way. Okay, and with this, we basically end, for now, the discussion of gazula. So we explored gazula by lulav, about whether that's an issue of ownership or whether it's an issue of mitzvah habab yavera. 
um, and whether if it's the first it's only the first day if it's the latter it's all seven days and now we've explored it by sukkah where interestingly the concept of mitzvah babiyah does not come up um, and you don't need to own a sukkah but there is a problem of gzula and then the question is does the land get labeled as gzula or not and when you steal the schach that should be a classic case of gzula but because of this idea of building things into roofs and a special takana, you actually can avoid most Gzula cases either way by the case of a sukkah. Okay, and now that we put Gzula aside, we turn back to the first, um, you know, the, the mission was Lulav HaGazul V'HaYavesh. So now we turn our attention to the issue of Yavesh, dried up. And you will remember that the first opening line of the Gemara understood that the problem of Yavesh was the word of Hadar. It says a, tree, a fruit from a beautiful tree and assumed that that word beautiful applied to all of the Arba Minim and therefore that is the problem of a dried up Lulav. And now we're going to turn to focus on that. So let's take a look. So the Gemara says like this. Um, um, uh, okay. The Tana Yavesh Pasul. So we taught in a Brita that a dried up Lulav is invalid. Rebbe Yehuda Machshir, but Rebbe Yehuda allows you to use a dried up Lulav. So I'm a rabba. So what's that based on? Machlokas belulav. They're only debating a dried up lulav. savi makshina That the same. The basic point is everybody agrees that the word hadar is rooted by esrog pre eight hadar. Now in that it's really just descriptive of what type of a fruit, a fruit from a beautiful tree. But the Gemara is going to understand that hadar also describes the physical character of the esrog. It has to be aesthetic. It has to be beautiful. So that everybody agrees to is Grubba's statement that that's true about the Esro. The question is, do we take that characteristic and apply and demand it to the other three things, the Lulav, the Harav, and the Hadassim as well? Okay? So, Bachlokas Belulav. So, Rabban and Savi, the rabbis hold, Makshina and Lulav, the Esro. We connect Lulav and all the meaning to the Esro. My esrog by hajar, the same hajar is a requirement by the esrog. Afluva by hajar, it's a requirement by the lulav and the hajar and the arava. Rabbi Yehuda suffered low machina lulav esrog, and Rabbi Yehuda says, no, it's only an esrog issue, not a lulav, not a hajar, not an arava. Those things can be dried up, those things don't need to be hajar. Okay? About the esrog, but when it comes to the esrog, the esrog, there says Rava, tibia kol hajar be'inan. Everybody would agree that you need hajar. So Rava's saying two points. Number one is, that everybody agrees by Esro. We're going to see about challenging that. Everybody agrees you need Hadar. Number two, that in principle, Rabbi Yehuda does not need any demands of Hadar by Lulav and Hadas and Arava. Meaning you could have said, of course Rabbi Yehuda needs Hadar, but maybe he has a different application of that concept. You know, maybe whether you consider something dried up to be Hadar or not, maybe we're debating the details. But Rav is saying no. It's a principal debate. In principle, Rav Yudah rejects any aesthetic demands by Lulav, Hadas, and Rav. A pretty bold claim. So the Gemara is going to work at challenging both aspects of Rav's claim. Let's take a look. So the Gemara says like this. Um... Okay. Um lo by Rabbi Yehuda Hadar. You think Rabbi Yehuda has no demands of Hadar by a lulav? That's not. Our Mishnah said Rabbi Yehuda. Rabbi Yehuda says if the leaves are fanned out by the lulav, yogdenu milamala. Then you, yes, it's a good lulav, but you have to flatten them against the spine and bind it together. So obviously, what's the reason for demanding that? It's some aesthetic issue that he needs to be addressed. So, my timer, what's the reason? Isn't it because he does have a demand of Hadar by the Lulav? So the Gemara says, no, no, that's not the reason. 
Tiriktani time. It's for the it's the reason is like we teach it in a, a brayta. Rabbi Yehuda Omer Mishum Rabbi Tarfan. Rabbi Yehuda says in the name of Rabbi Tarfan. Kapot Smarim. It says a kapot, which is like a palm branch. Um, it's interesting, by the way. The, well, okay, uh, the word, use of the word palm and kaf. Anyway, but pa, okay. Anyway, kapot Smarim. So he says. Um, in, where, where is it? Oh, kafut. Read kapot to mean kafut, bound. V'im haya parud, and if we're spread out, yichfetenu, then you have to bind it. So yes, it is a demand by the lulav, but it's not a hadar demand. It's a very specific demand that it has to be like all bound up. The leaves have to be combined rather than to be spread out. But it, he does not have a basic demand of aesthetics. It's just a specific issue of the leaves. Okay, so now the Gemara says like this. Um, the, the low by Hadar, I'm still going to challenge it. Are you really going to tell me that Rabbi Yudah has no demands of, of beauty by Lulav? When you make the knot around the Lulav, now here we're not talking about the spread out leaves, here we're talking about the Lulav and the Hadas and the Rava. When you bind them together, you have to use something from the palm tree. You can't use like a string. So, um, so my timer. What's the reason? Why does he demand that? Why can't he let you use a rubber band or a string? Lav mishum de Isn't it because he demands hadar? Because you know it's more aesthetically pleasing to have it all from the same species. So presumably that's why he demands that. So the merchant says, "Lo, no, that's not what it's about. It's not about aesthetics." The hammer rubber. Rubber said, says, I feel the same, I feel the equidicula. When Red Yehuda let says you have to use the same species, it can be even an ugly part of the palm tree. It can be like some of the bark. It can be a vine, you know, one of the sort of things that grows around the trunk of the tree. So it can be ugly. So it's not about aesthetics. So why then does he demand that it be from the palm tree if it's not aesthetics? Well, in my time, it's Red Yehuda. So if that's not what it's about, then why does he demand that you that and that he doesn't let you use a rubber band? So Hasam, Hasam, what's his reason there? Because Summer, because he's of the opinion, Lulav Tzarech Eget. Lulav, remember we had this discussion before, that biblically you need to bind them together. That is an, act, that is an actual requirement in the Torah that all three minim have to be bound together. And therefore, since that's really uh, uh, the definition of the, of the, of the mitzvah object, if you were to introduce some foreign matter, if you were to introduce a rubber band, or let's say, whatever, let's say you were to use, I don't know, a, uh, um, a you know, some type of a, uh, a bam, uh, like a, uh, a blade of grass or something to do the, to do the binding, you would have an extra part of the lulav. Okay, meaning the point is like this. According to the rabbis, the idea of binding the lulav with the esrog and with the with the hadas and the arava is only like an aesthetic issue. It's only and and therefore, what do they care what you bind it with? You could use a rubber band. You could use a gold, uh, you know, a gold chain. It's just nicer when it's all together. But according to Yehuda, no. When it's bound together, that makes the mitzvah object. So everything that's there, what's inside of the of the band and the band itself are all components of the mitzvah object. So you can't introduce some foreign matter because then you're making the mitzvah object with something not from the arbaminium. Because by being def- by binding it, that makes it part of this is the mitzvah object that they're bound together. So that's why he demands that it be something from the palm tree and not from some foreign matter. But it has nothing to do with aesthetics. It has to do with 
a formal halachic definition of becoming part of the mitzvah object and cannot be extraneous because then it's like a baltosif issue and then it redefines what the mitzvah object <coughs> is. Yes. According to that position, Rabbi Yehud, it's ma'akeg if you're not, if you don't... Yes, that is true. Because Rabbi Yehud, if you do not bind them together, you're not yotzei the mitzvah. Yes. So I could bind it together with myrtle twigs. Yes, you could do it. It does not have to be dafka lula lula. And that's, I think as I've mentioned in the past, it's actually quite easy to do this because these are how am I supposed to use a lula thing to bind a lula? You pull off the, the leaf from the lula, you split it in half, you know, it's sort of doubled over, then you tear down a strip and you have something that basically works like a very good string and it's very, you know, it's very sort of uh, um, um, strong as well and then you just make a double knot. I'll show you how to do it when it's... Yeah. <laughs> we, hold we don't hold like Reb Yehuda. We hold like the Rabbanan but even though we hold like the Rabbanan, you know, the Rabbanan also want a mitzvah because of, because of this idea of Hadar or, you know, or, or Zekeli Van Veo of beauty. The interesting question is, for them, is it just an aesthetic point or is it also that there is something beautiful about it being bound together, you know, and about... So, is, do they some degree buy into the, a Red Yehuda concept except just say that it's not required? And the difference would be, for example, do you have to do a double knot? You know, is there a real idea of making... Or, or is it nice that it just... Is it more that it just looks nice together? Right? Right, so we do not have to. We don't have to. But again, for some it's actually... There's also Minig Chabad to do this as well. You know, for some actually that, that's, that there is... That one way of reading the rabbis is that they agree with Rabbi Yehuda Lechachila but not B'dyevet. So that at least... May, and that might mean that at some Lechachila level they might, it might be nice to have, you know, the same meaning. But, but it's not what the Gemara sounds like. The Gemara sounds like it's a very clearly a debate. The Rabbi Yehuda wants you to use a part of the lula for the Eged and the rabbis say, you know, you could use a gold band. There's no problem with using something else as part of the Eged. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter that it's dried. Some people say it matters because it's not exactly a double knot, and that might be what part of the definition. So we'll talk about that more. We're going to get more to that idea coming up later. Okay, so let's take a look as the as Gemara continues. Okay, so A, we tried to prove that Red Yehuda demands Hadar because he wants it he wants the leaves all bound together and he wants the meaning knotted together and we said that is not an aesthetic point. It's a definitional. So Lulav has to have the leaves all combined and you need everything bound together. That is a definition of the object but that is not an aesthetic. It does not have an aesthetic requirement. Okay, so now the Gemara says like this. So fine. Let's accept your point that Rabbi Yudab fundamentally says you don't need Hadar by Lulav. Now let's argue it the other way because you're saying he does have all the demands by an Esro. By an Esro, he doesn't debate at all. Is that really true? The Gemara says, Ube esrog me by Rebbe Yehuda Hadar. Now ask him the other direction. Does he really have the, does he really make demands by the esrog? Is he really only talking about a lulav? The Hatanya, we turn to Brisa, Arba meaning Shabalulav, the four meaning of the Lulav, Tishem Shein Pochzimehem, Kachin Mosivin Aleim, the same way you can't have less than the four meaning, you can't add more. Okay? So, you know, that becomes like a Baltosif problem. Don't take in your hands, you know, the four meaning plus, uh, you know, a, a stalk of celery. Oh, it makes it look nicer. No. You know, you start getting into Baltosif issues. Number one. Um, now, number two is, don't try to do substitutes. You can't find an Esro, lo yavi lo parish velo rimon velo davar acher. Don't bring the parish, I don't know, what do they say a parish is? Quince. Yeah. A quince or a pomegranate and nothing else. Don't make any substitute. 
Kimushin Kshevin. If the meaning are, 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 are will things, it's kosher. Yeveshim Psulim. Once it's dried, it's invalid. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, af Yeveshim, even dried are okay. I'm a Rabbi Yehuda, and Rabbi Yehuda said, Maisa, Bivnei Krochim, there was a space in people from the cities, and Rashi says, you know, you're in the cities, you don't have, it's very nice to live in a city, but you don't have the same type of maybe agricultural, you know, bounty as you do if you're out there in the farms and in the villages. So, Shahayumo, so they were not, it was very hard for them to get the Arba Minim. Shahayumo, Rishimus, Lulavayim, Livnevenayim. They would pass down their Lula of the Esrogs, presumably, for not only to the next generation, but to their grandkids. Oh, this is the Lula that my Zaini took, and that's what you would take for, 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 for Sukkot. So, you see, dried up is okay. By that time, it's all dried up. So, the Gemara says, Amrulo, they said back to him, Misham Raya, that's where you want to bring a proof from? A time of like uh, um, um, you know of uh, urgency. Now urgency is the wrong word, uh, but uh, when you know when when there's really no other alternatives, then you make exceptions. But otherwise, it is really not a proof. Otherwise, um, when it's not those circumstances, you cannot take a dried up lulav. One minute. First, I want to finish the proof of the Gemara, and then we'll discuss the significance of this little exchange. Ketani Mihas, we taught nevertheless. Okay, that was very fascinating. But you have Rabbi Yehuda saying, I don't care that it's dried up. Rabbi Yehuda Omer, Afyazation carries. Even dried up is kosher. And the Brites started talking about all the Arba Minim. So, my lava esrog, isn't he including the esrog in that? That the esrog can be dried up and still be kosher? It sounds like he's talking about everything. It says, Lo, Alulav. No, we're talking about the lulav. When he says, and when he said that they would, they would bequeath their lulav to their later generations, he didn't mean all the arba meaning. He meant the lulav and the hadas and the arava. But maybe, again, rava is asserting that Rabbi Yehuda would admit that esrog has, esrog has the highest demands. That esrog cannot be dried up. So although it sounds like Rabbi Yehuda is saying, anything can be dried up and they would bequeath everything to the later generations the Gemara to defend Rava in the end we're going to reject Rava let me just give you a little hint in the end we're going to say that Rabbi Yehuda also argues by Esrog and also says that Esrog can be dried up but at this stage we're defending Rava who says that Rabbi Yehuda does not allow to dried up Esrog and we're having this statement about bequeathing the Lulav and saying that dried up is okay to be only about the Lulav and the Hadas and the Rava not about the Esrog now I want to say something about this issue about bequeathing in Raya. So the Rishonim point out that if Rabbi Yehuda is bringing a proof from using a dried up lulav, presumably um, the people that were taking the lulav were making a bracha, right? Or else what type of a proof did he think he was bringing? So even, even when the Chachamim concede the point and say it's a shas hadachak, what can you infer from that? You can infer that if you really have a hard time getting another lulav and esro, you can use a pasa one and make a bracha because they would say Shas HaTachak is different, but presumably in Shas HaTachak, you can go ahead and use things that otherwise would be puzzled. So if you take a look at the little Tosos at the bottom of Lamed Aleph, Lamed Aleph, Tosos says, Lo Matza Esrog, Lo Yavi, Lo Rimon, Lo Parish, Yesh Ledaklik Nikandim, Lo Matza Kasher, Mevarek B'Pasul. If you did not find a kosher one, you could actually make a, use a puzzle and make a bracha. The only thing it says you can't use is a quince. But, it, but, why, but it doesn't say you can use a, a puzzle, a, a, but, but puzzle astro, maybe you could use and make a bracha if you had no other choice. The yesh lidchos, yeah, you could say it's, that's not the world's greatest proof. The way the rabbis would concede that you could use a puzzle lula b'shat hadachak, maybe you could use puzzle arba minim. Now, as I m- mentioned to you at the beginning of the parak, 
there's a major debate between Chachme Ashkenaz and Chachme Svarad. There was a reality that it was hard to get kosher lulavim in Esrogim. And that they would actually, they might have tussle ones, they might have dried up ones, it was hard to get kosher ones. What do you, so how is that addressed? So actually it's addressed differently in Ashkenaz and Svarad. In Svarad they say, as I told you the other day, that at least on Cholomoed, these psulim are not a problem. These psulim are only a problem on the first day, not on Cholomoed. So at least you're Yosef and Cholomoed. That's what they say. The Ashkenaz said, no, actually these psulim are a problem all seven days. But, you can make a bracha even on the psulim. Okay? The Nachtimimit would be that for the Ashkenazim, you could use the psulim even on the first day and make a bracha. For the Svardim, you could It's based on this Shaf HaDachak idea. Now, some say that's a wrong thing to learn from the Shaf HaDachak. Because some psulim are, you know, like, you know, you know, what, you know, you know, beauty is like relative. Like, every, like, Gulliver's uh, Tales, right? And you know how, like, you know, when he gets, whatever, different views of things, you know, beauty is all relative to the people around you and to what you're sort of seeing around you. So, is a dried up lulav not hadar? Well, if the only things available are dried up lulavs and nobody has seen a fresh lulav for the last 20 years, maybe a dried up lulav is hadar. Okay, but just because we allow a dried up lulav in a case where nothing else is available doesn't necessarily mean we allow the other invalidities, which might not be so relative as this idea of dried up. That's what other Rishonim say. But again, this becomes very important for the Ashkenazi Rishonim who say that if you can't get a kosher lulav and esrog, you can not take puzzle ones and make a bracha on them. Because that presumably was it happening here in this case. I think, Charlie, you had a question first? Yeah, come on Um Rabbi Yehuda lived in Eretz Israel. Right. Palm trees are all over the Middle East. Yeah. How could no people not be able to find Ulula? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know what type of whether they necessarily were available to people in the cities. And people well, in the cities maybe never traveled out of the cities. You know, they wanted well, to stay in the safety of the cities. Well, there's another There's another question. They, they particularly say in Tamar here, which is a particular palm tree. Oh. Uh, do we require Ulula to be a particular species of palm tree? Interested was it not that I know of? I first I'm hearing that there are different species. Okay, oh, okay. there are like yeah. 400 species. Uh, are there really? Okay, Dove. Does this uh, issue of uh, making a bracha on the psul b'shat of the chak apply to sacred Torah? There is discussion about that as well, but you it's know, based the Rambam, on the Rambam, but it's based on a different discussion. But it's an interesting analogy that you make. Okay, so the Gemara says like this. Um, okay, so we still are arguing that Rabbi Yehuda demands hadar by the esrog. Now we're going to unpack what we said. Um, the um, um, okay. So the Gemara says like this, Amar Mar, let's go back and look at what we said before. To shame shame the same way you don't have fewer than the Arba Minim, Kach you don't add. Pshita, obviously. No. Now the Tema, I might have thought, Hold on, Rabbi Yudah, Lulav Tzarech Eged. Lulav needs to be bound, uh, needs to be tied together. So before we said that what you use to bind it becomes a very integral part of the Mitzvah object. But by the same argument, what would be outside of the knot would be more considered obviously independent. The imaisi minachrina, and even if you were to bring, let's say, a stalk of celery, maybe, okay, here you got your, you got your, you got your lulav and your hadas and arava bound together, and you're also holding on to a stalk of celery. Are you doing the mitzvah like with baltosis, <laughs> or are you just happen to be eating a stalk of celery? Let's say I was shaking the lulav and eating the celery with the other hand. Would anybody say that I'm doing baltosis? Presumably not. So the Gemara says, "Well, you know what? 
Maybe I'd say the same according to Rabbi Yehuda. If it's outside of the knot, and the knot defines the mitzvah object, it's just like, even if it's right there on the same hand, it's just like you're holding on and eating a stalk of celery with the other hand. It's not part of the object, and maybe it's not a problem. Now, according to the rabbis, it would be a bigger problem, because the rabbis say that the knot doesn't matter so much. So according to the rabbis that the knot doesn't matter, maybe it is all more like you're doing a mitzvah in a baltosif in a, you know, in a redefined way. But according to Rabbi Yehuda, maybe you're totally safe. So maybe that would be okay. Kamash Malan, that you can't do it. Now, Tosos actually says, what if you did do it? What if you took the Lulav and Hadas and Arava and they were knotted together and you had the stalk of celery and you actually held them together and you shook them together and the whole thing. What would be the halakha? So Tosa says, you know what? According to Reb Yehuda, you're still Yotze. Maybe even according to the Rabbanan, you're Yotze. Maybe we would say Hai in terms of whether you Yotze the mitzvah. But you know what? It wouldn't be allowed to do it. You might still be over on Baltosis. So here becomes a very interesting question. When you're is the transgression of baltosis mean that you're not yotze the mitzvah? If I did the mitzvah in a way that I was doing it extra, like, you know, we talk about, let's say, five, if I do five tzitzit on my garment, right? Or five batim on my, on my you know, on my tzillin. I'm on, over on baltosis. Does it also mean I'm not yotze the mitzvah? And it could be, because we were talking before about, are you, about the whole idea of gazul and what does that do to the object of the mitzvah, that it might, it might matter. If you've changed the object of the mitzvah, you made five batim on your, on your tefillin, or you put something else inside of the knot, according to Reb Yehuda, or you use something else to make the knot, you've redefined the mitzvah object, then you're not Yotze. But let's say you did baltosif without redefining the mitzvah object. You took the, you took the bundle and the stalk of celery outside of the knot. So you did a baltosif, you did it in a way using more things, but since you didn't redefine the mitzvah object, then you still, you did a mitzvah and you did baltosif. And maybe you are able to actually be yotze the mitzvah. Okay, so it's a very interesting question, the point, what the Gemara puts out there, that maybe this thing outside the knot is irrelevant, and it, in the end it says, no, it's still forbidden to do it. Being forbidden to do it does not mean necessarily that you are not over that, that you are not yotze the mitzvah. It might still be considered separate from the mitzvah object, and you might still be yotze. So that's a fascinating for me concept in the parallels issues. Before, are we talking about the object problem, or are we talking about the action problem? Okay, now let's keep on going. Kamar says like this: Amar Mar. Lo matzah esrog, lo yavi, lo rimon, lo parish, lo davar acher. If you didn't find an esrog, don't bring a substitute, a quince or a pomegranate. Shita, obviously. No. Ma'al to tame a lacy, yechad lo tishtach toch esrog. Maybe you should bring it because better to take some substitute and not forget the idea of, of, of esrog rather than this sukkah, I'm not taking the arba minim at all. Kamash malon. That, it's not better to do that. Why? Zimni did not be korba Sometimes destruction will come out of this. The Asi Lemisrach, you'll come to be, you're pulled after it. Here's the slippery slope uh, in the Gemara's language, is Asi Lemisrach, you'll be drawn after it. <laughs> Which means that if I start using pomegranates next year, uh, even when there are estrogen, I'll use pomegranates. I'll say pomegranates is also a beautiful fruit. You know, last year I used pomegranates, I bet pomegranates is good. Okay, so better not to take the rule of an estrog at all, rather than to take it to keep up the practice, but to create a misimpression about what actually constitutes the mitzvah. Now, this is used by some Rishonim to argue against what Tosa said. They'll say, aha, you see, 
Don't do it the wrong way. Doing it the wrong way is worse than not doing it at all. Don't tell me if you only have psul in one, you can take a puzzle and make a bracha. No! This Gemara is saying that that leads to big problems. Then you start thinking that even when you have kshayim, you can use psulim. Okay, now obviously there's a difference. Tosos would say back, no. Here's you're using something actually categorically different. You're using a pomegranate. When you're still using a lulav and esrel and it's just puzzle, that's a different story. Of course, the response back would be, that's worse. That's more the reason why people will think that it's okay if you start taking psulim and make a bracha, right? But this is like a counterbalance to the idea of shas hadachak. Because this is also a shas hadachak, but says, but to actually use a real, a completely different thing, that is not, that is unacceptable. We don't say better to do some mock thing. A mock thing will lead to you thinking it's a real thing. Okay, so very interesting how that balances with the other concerns before. Okay, now, finally, back to the argument, that Re- of Rava's argument that Rev Yehuda does not need had- Hadar. Let's take a look. Tashma, come in here. Esrog HaYashan Pasul. If you have a, an old Esrog, so we're talking Esrog, we're explicit, it's invalid. Rev Yehuda Rev Yehuda says it's okay. So you see, Rev Yehuda does not have the aesthetic demands even by an Esrog. So the Gemara says, you know, so the Gemara says, Tiyufta de Rava, Tiyufta, fine, that settles it. We're rejecting Rava. Rava is right that Reb Yudah principally rejects Hadar, but he doesn't only reject it by Lulav. He rejects it even by Esrog itself. He does not have aesthetic demands by the Arba, meaning even the Esrog. So the Gemara says, the low by Reb Hadar, so the Gemara never happens. The low by Hadar, really? He doesn't have demands by an Esrog? The Anantnan, we taught, Hayarukikarti, if the Esrog is green like a leek, um, Rebbe Meir Machshir, Rebbe Meir says it's okay, Rebbe Yudah Posa, Rebbe says it's invalid. So, obviously, he has aesthetic demands by an Esrog. So, my says, no. Lavnishim Dubai Hadar, excuse me, isn't it because he demands Hadar? But says, no, no, that's not what it's based on. Mishum, the Gomer Peira, because it's not yet ripe, meaning an Esrog has to be pre, right, pre a Hadar. It has to be a fruit. So to be considered a fruit, it has to be ripe. So it's similar to points we said before. We're not saying he has no criteria. He could have criteria coming from other places, but they're not aesthetic criteria per se. So a green esrog is invalid, not because he thinks it's unesthetic. A green esrog is invalid because it's not ripe, and therefore it's not fully a fruit. And that's what it's about. Okay, Tashma, let's try again to try to prove that Reb Yudha does have aesthetic demands by an Esro. So according to that, he wouldn't allow a green Esro. Right. So coming here. Sheer Esro Katan, the size of a, the smallest acceptable Esro, Reb Yudha Omer Ke'egos, the size of like a, a nut, a walnut, Reb Yudha Omer Ke'egos, the size of an egg. So you see, he has a higher demand of size, and presumably that's an aesthetic point. Lav Nishum Devayadar, isn't it because he needs it to be aesthetically acceptable? Well, no, because you know what? Even in defining what it means to be a fruit and a finished fruit, a certain size is relevant too. Now, Tosas points out, even if this fruit will never get bigger, some fruits grow very small, he might still say, it doesn't matter. We look at it through a sort of standard lens, and from a standard lens, something this small isn't considered an esrog fruit. If it was a different fruit, maybe isn't considered an esrog fruit. But it's not aesthetics. It's about a definition of a fruit. Okay, but not an aesthetic issue. So, the Mar is still not done. Um, Tashma, 
Ubigado, what is the biggest size of an acceptable esrog? Today she yochzu shnayim biyado achasi. Rebuta says you have to be able to hold two esrogim of that size in the same hand. If it's so big, like some of those tamani esrogim that you can't hold, yeah, then it's not good. Rebuta yomer afiu achas b'shveyadav. He likes the tamani esrogim, even if you need two hands to hold one, it's still kosher. There isn't an upper limit. So my time, what? Why does Rebuta need it to be, you know, not too big? Isn't it because he wants Hadar? You know, aesthetics are like that. Can't be, it's not going to this extreme, not going to that extreme, not too small, not too big. Isn't it because he needs Hadar? Isn't that what it's based on? So the Gemara says, no, no, again, it's not a Hadar. Kivand Amar Rabbah, it's a technical concern. Rabbah says, Lula v'yamin v'esrog v'smo. You have to hold your lulav in your right hand and your esrog in your left hand. Because the reason the lulav is in the right is because it has three minims. So three beat at one. And we always favor the right. Uh, interesting questions for lefties like me, whether this is for everybody or just for righties. Um, and uh, actually, uh, uh, somewhat of a debate, but when I take the lulav, I take the lulav in my left hand. Okay, so, but anyway, but let's assume at least for righties, lulav's in the right hand. So what will happen? Sometimes you'll get it in the wrong hand. And then you'll say, wait, we have to switch hands because of what Rava says. And you'll try to sort of switch hands with them. And if you have too big of an esrog, what's going to happen? So you have to switch. There's a moment, unless you're a good juggler, there's a moment where one hand has to hold on to both. Right? You have to put one in one end and take the other. So if the esrog is too big, it has to, then it'll fall down. It has to be small enough. It can't, that you could fit two esrogs in, which also means you could fit an esrog and a lulav. By the way, I have to tell you that this happens all the time when you borrow a lulav. When you borrow a lulav. Because if you're handing your lulav an esrog, your, my left hand is opposite your right hand. Right? So therefore, anytime I take it from you, I'm going to have to switch hands. So if you have to do that, unless it's a lefty lending to a righty or vice versa. Exactly. Okay. Right. Exactly. The, so that's what the problem is. Reb Yehuda does not go. We have settled, we have now come to the conclusion that Reb Yehuda has demands by a lulav and an estro, but they're not hadar demands. They're based on an issue of being bound, of being, you know, the leaves one unit. By the estro, it's based on being ripe and being defined as a fruit. Can't be too big, so you don't come to drop it. But they're not hadar demands. Reb Yehuda does no demand of hadar by lulav and Esrog, no aesthetic demands, and therefore he says Yavesh is okay in both cases. So the Gemara says, the Elul Rebbe Yehuda, Hai Ksiv Hadar, what does he do with the word Hadar? So the Gemara says, Hadar Biwana Mishana Lashana, it's to tell you what type of a fruit it is. Now we would just say it describes the tree. By the way, the Ramban Allah Torah says the word Esrog, he compares it to the Aramaic word Miragay, which means beautiful or means appealing. And he actually says that the word Hadar could be a, a, a proper name, meaning the name of the fruit is, like, for example, like we have a fruit called a passion fruit. It doesn't mean the fruit is passionate, okay? Actually, do people know why it's called a passion fruit? Presumably because when you cut it open, the inside of it somehow it evokes something about the passion of, uh, of Jesus or whatever. So, uh, anyway, you can... Oh, it's very bloody red. Maybe. Anyway, so a hunter could just mean that's the name of the fruit. And that's the name Esrog. It means beautiful. That's just its proper name. The Gemara says something slightly, uh, basically that, but slightly different. That the word Hadar, it take out the hay, means which lives, which dwells on the tree from year to year. And an Esrog tree, the Esrogians stay from year to year. And therefore, the word Hadar identifies the tree, but is not meant to create a demand and a criterion of beauty. Okay, we will end with this. Saying basically, I don't need this a perennial. Yeah.